Episode 58 of Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. Can you believe that? 58 episodes already. It feels like yesterday we were just talking about uh, Egypt Station, but man, time has flown and we're back. It's Monday night. It's Talk More Talk and I'm Tom Hunyadi. You may know me from my other show, Two Legs, a Paul McCartney podcast. Tonight, we are going to be talking about the legacy of Phil Spector. As we know, last week, I think it was Phil passed away and now I do want to stress that we're just going to be talking about his contributions to music we're not going to be discussing his personal life so please keep the comments of that kind of stuff away uh, we don't need that stuff but anyways we're going to be talking about Phil Spector you know his beginnings his his involvement with the, the Beatles and, and and solo Beatles and and maybe a couple other things if we have time so once again I'm Tom Maniotti I'm going to talk I'm going to introduce to my co-host right now and I'm just so lucky to be involved with with these people just so great first up it's you know the queen what can you say the queen kittle tool her song right here songs we are singing uh the guy that tours through the lesser known uh, beetle tracks and uh great to be here she's also got the uh, michael jackson faq everything there is left to know about the king of pop and she is kittle tool kit welcome to the show once thank again you. thank you so much i'm so glad to be here and i think this is going to be a really really interesting night yeah, it should be fun. It should be fun. Absolutely. Uh, next, we've got uh, right down below me, if, uh, if that's how it uh, is for you guys. He's the, uh, the longtime host of this incredible radio show called Every Little Thing. And boy, does he play Every Little Thing. It's just really amazing. The things that I've learned from listening to his show over the last uh, 10, 8, 8, 12 years, however long I've been listening to this show, but it's just so amazing uh, to listen to that show. Uh, he's, his, the live show is on break for, for the time being, but he's still doing a syndicated version, which is found wherever. I mean, just hundreds of places on the internet just type in every little thing and i'm sure you're going to find you know a place where where it's being uh where, where you can listen to it and he's also the host of the show uh things we said today which um was pretty much my inspiration to start two legs a paul mccartney podcast so i want to uh welcome uh, ken michaels ken how you doing Good. Thank you, Tom, for that wonderful introduction. I wish every little thing was on hundreds of radio stations. <laughs> Hopefully we can make that happen. But yes. uh, hi to you and hi to Kit and hi to, to all of our fans. 
Very cool. Tonight, as you can see, we have a very special guest. Really excited to, to introduce him. His name is Jason Krupa. You may know him as the host of the excellent Producing the Beatles podcast. And he's also the co-author of the upcoming book called All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison, Clapton, and Other Assorted Love Songs. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be a great talk. Right. Now, Jason, you've also contributed to two Excellent books, Maximum Volume, George Marson, and Tune In, right, with Mark Lewison. Yes, so yes. We're all good boys and girls tonight. Maybe, maybe he can let us know when Volume 2 is coming out, huh? What do you say, Jason? <laughs> He's not telling me either. <laughs> he just says, he just says, I'm working hard. I'm working for all our days, you know. Did, 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 did you contribute anything to Volume 2 before we get started? Um, I mean, I'm sure I have. We've emailed a lot over the years, and um, and I was at his house a few years ago. Mm -hmm. he, he, he pulled a photocopier out and handed me a stack of files, and he said, you're going to be interested in this stuff. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of George Martin-related uh, material. Okay. But, um, so, yeah, uh, we just talked a lot, and we've sent things back and forth over the years. So I'm, I'm sure there's some stuff. Great. Cool. Um, Excellent. So uh, before we get uh, get talking about Phil Spector, we're going to hand it over to Ken Michaels and Ken's going to tell us all the latest and greatest and all the news that's going on in the world of the Beatles. Thank you, Tom. Now that you've wet my appetite for Mark Lewison's next book, <laughs> we can't wait much longer. No. <laughs> all right. In Beatle news, Paul McCartney's latest album, McCartney 3, has dropped mightily on the Billboard charts. After debuting at number two, it then sunk down to 37, then dropped to number 90, and the latest showing on the top 200 albums here in the US, the album is at number 200. Oh. Only four weeks on the album charts, and it's already at 200. Very much Ouch. like Egypt Station, which as I've said several times here, only spent four weeks on the album charts in the U.S. And after debuting at number one in the U.K. on their official albums charts, the album then dropped to number 19, then 38, and is now completely off their top 100 album charts. Yikes. A brand new documentary on the untold story of the world-famous Abbey Road Studios called If These Walls Could Sing is now in the works, directed by Paul McCartney's daughter, Mary and to be produced by Academy Award BAFTA and Primetime Emmy Award winner, John Batsek, known for his work on One Day in September, Searching for Sugar Man, and Eric Clapton, Life in 12 Bars. This follows a new development deal between Mercury Studios, that's the music first content studio from the Universal Music Group, and Batsek's company uh, called Ventureland. Mary McCartney brings her own unique perspective to this documentary, saying, some of my earliest memories as a young child come from time spent at Abbey Road. I've long wanted to tell the story of this historic place, and I couldn't be collaborating with a better team than John and Mercury Studios to make this creative ambition a reality. If These Walls Could Sing marks the first time Abbey Road has opened its doors to a, a, a feature-length documentary and will be the centerpiece of the legendary recording studio's 90th anniversary, uh, which will begin in November this year. It will tell countless stories featuring an all-star cast of interviews, unparalleled access to the studios, and of course, 
a spellbinding soundtrack. That's what the press release says. So let's hope uh, Paul and Ringo's involved with this, mm. maybe contributing something to it. Nice. Love to see some new music for it. That would be a nice touch. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, in cover versions, there is a new cover of the song Arrow Through Me from the band Scary Pockets. This group has been around since 2017, and they are described as R&B, soul, and funk, and they post a new video of a song that they perform every week. This band has an ever-changing roster of personnel. Two weeks ago, they posted their video for Arrow Through Me with Madison Cunningham as their lead vocalist. Pretty good job of this song. I don't know if any of you have heard it. I've been, I enjoyed it immensely. That's yeah. it's really good. If you haven't seen yeah. it, it's yeah, good R&B. Yeah, interesting thing is that instead of having horns on it, they had the guitar player repeat the same lines yep. that the horn mm. players did. Yep. So, yeah. It worked. Cool. Also, with special thanks to John Bazzini of the Beatles in Print Together and Solo Facebook page, Available so far only on Kindle on February 16th will be Richard Perry's new book. It's called Cloud Nine, Memoirs of a Record Producer. For Beatle fans, we know him best for producing Ringo's two albums, Ringo and Goodnight Vienna, but he's also produced so many more great artists, Harry Nilsson, Carly Simon, Barbara Streisand, Art Garfunkel, Diana Ross, and many others. Let's hope that there'll be, uh, you know, a hardcover or a softcover book to go along with that. And our longtime friend Chris Engelhardt is back, the author of the books Deep Undercover and Deeper Undercover. <laughs> his books have explored the many side projects of the solo Beatles, and he will have his final book on the subject coming out October 1st this year to be called Beatles fully undercovered. <laughs> it's an updated version of his first two books. And Excellent. this is something that, you know, Tom and I have talked about this. I was yeah. a guest on Two Legs talking about side projects of the Beatles and their solo careers. In this case, with uh, Two Legs, it's all oh. Paul stuff. But um, it's all songs that they wrote or played on or produced for other people. And right. um, Chris has done an outstanding job with his books. Can't wait for that one to come out. Uh, also, we anxiously await word of the new Plastic on All Band box set. The website for the band, which earlier said an announcement would be coming in January, now mm. says it'll be announced in early 2021. Uh, mm. You know, I was talking about that earlier today when I went live on the Talk More Talk page. And as much as I want the, this box set, I'm also in a way going, okay, give my wall a little bit more of a break before this stuff comes out, you know? So, you know, if it's going to be another month or two, fine. But I know we'll get it. But, uh, you know, the wallet is is needing a much, much, much bit of a break since uh, the McCartney 3 fiasco, for sure. With all the different... <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. My God, there's there should just yeah. be one room from a car. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. Um, unfortunately, we close our news with uh, uh, some past things to talk about. And first of all, the death of the legendary broadcaster Larry King. Who is best known for interviewing countless celebrities on his TV programs through the years, mainly on CNN. Paul was interviewed with his then wife, Heather Mills, for one interview. 
Larry was also there at the one year anniversary for, for the Beatles Love in Las Vegas, interviewing Paul, Ringo, Yoko, and Olivia. Larry also interviewed Julian in 2011. He died, Larry died at the age of 87, yet but another victim of COVID-19. Anybody want to say anything about Larry King? You see on the back of Driving Rain, there he is. I think it's... Uh... Yeah. Oh, look at that. 20. Yeah. Oh, you know, wow. That's, yeah, that's the picture that he took with his little uh, camera watch right there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Forgot about that. Yeah. You are on the ball, Tom. <laughs> hey, we got a big time guest here. I got to raise my, I got to step my game up. You know? <laughs> I am duly impressed. Thank you. Wow, that was... That's going to end up a trivia question on my website. There you go. Hey, there you go. There you go. Finally, we have to announce, unfortunately, the death of animator Ron Campbell. Mm. Australian-born, his career began by animating commercials for television over there. When Al Brodax brought his uh, uh, cartoons, Beetle Bailey, isn't that ironic, Beetle Bailey, <laughs> and Crazy Cat there for production, Campbell was asked to work on the shows, and that led to his working on the animated Beetle cartoons for King Features, where it debuted in September of 1965 and ran for four years. Ron was also hired by Bill Hanna of Hanna-Barbera, and he relocated to Hollywood, where he worked on shows such as The Smurfs, The Jetsons, The Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, Rugrats, Rocket Power, and Ed, Ed, and Eddie. <laughs> Al Brodax contacted uh, Campbell again in 1968 from London when he was working on the Beatles film Yellow Submarine and asked Campbell to animate many of the connecting sequences of the movie. And he ended up animating about 12 minutes of the film. Ron Campbell was 81. Wow. wow. Sad news right there. Another piece of Beatles and, history. Yeah, absolutely. Man gone. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, every year, uh, unfortunately, more and more are, are leaving us and all that history they've, you know, they're, they're leaving us for us to either talk about or, or the younger generations to discover and, you know, his mark has been left and uh, hopefully, um, you know, his work will be discovered in the future as well. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's all the news that I have. January wow. is a slow month. <laughs> yep. <laughs> It's still amazing, though, you know, when we get together every two weeks, just the, the amount of news, even even on a light week. I mean, it's still, you know, the fact that there's news to talk to discuss. It's still, you know, amazing. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. Yeah. Well, you got to give credit, especially to someone like Paul, yeah. who never rests <laughs> for the yep. most part. You know, there's always right. things he's got in the works. All mm -hmm. the all the um, archival releases we have to talk about. There's absolutely. so much. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. that's the truth. You know. 100 copies of McCartney 3 to talk about. Yes, but anyway, that's a different... That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, Is the tie-dye version yeah, coming out? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'm waiting check, for that one. I'm waiting for that one. Check the dead wax of all the vinyl copies yes. to see if they're different, you know, depressed in different uh, right. places. There you go. There you go. But anyways, like, yeah, but anyways, like I said earlier earlier in the show, that we're going to be talking about the the, uh, the legacy of, of Phil Spector, and um, you know what he's left behind for us to to talk about and and marvel at for for generations to come, and um, just 
yeah, say what you will about him, but but his his legacy is intact, and um, it's definitely important and worthwhile uh, to discuss. And so that's why we felt it's an important for for us uh, to to uh, to talk about it on this show today. So uh, Jason, uh, once again, our, our guest today, uh, he came he came on board to talk about Phil Spector with us, and I want to just dig into his earlier career because before he was this you know superstar producer he was actually started a band called called the teddy bears and what i didn't realize until recently was there was already with that a beatles connection with uh, the song to uh you know to know to know him and um you know obviously the beatles covered that uh, that song and um you know what can you what, what can you say about uh, his earlier you know life before he became a uh a big time producer well, in in uh, researching his his background, I was I was looking into all aspects of his career before the Beatles. When I was um, when I was researching mm-hmm. uh, all things must pass, and and I wanted to know what he you know what brought him to that point, and and you know how how his previous productions had affected these sessions, and and try to pry apart what happened. So I I read I don't know four books I think. Um, wow. And a lot of articles. There, there are actually quite a few interviews from over the years. Um, and so, what I things I learned, I didn't realize that he was he was musically trained. Mm. Um, his first instrument was actually the accordion, oh, wow. which he learned to play uh, fairly young. His mother bought him a guitar, I think, at age thirteen. And within a couple of years, he was taking. He was really interested in jazz guitar. He was mm. taking jazz guitar lessons with Barney Kessel who is a, um, a renowned jazz guitarist and a session musician in Los Angeles. And uh, Kessel really took him under his wing and he said, you know, there's no money in being a dead artist, like you can production, songwriting and publishing and things like that. Mm-hmm. So he really, he really kind of helped guide him. And uh, Kessel would play on a lot of those gold star sessions in the 60s. But uh, this was obviously well before then. Right. And so he sort of helped him get started in terms of how to approach the business. And then uh, soon after Spectre gradu- graduated from high school, that's when he formed Teddy Bears. Mm. Um, and he wrote that song. He saw right. into, saw the production. You know, he went to Gold Star and he basically pestered them to say, you know, let me make a record. And I think, I think the first, it wasn't that song, but the first session, I think they charged him $40 or something like that. So... You know, it was really, it was really, um, uh, you know, just sort of scratching away to to do whatever he could to break into records and start, start making music. Um, I know we don't want to talk too much about his personal life, but there right. is this; these things are going to kind of come up as we as we discuss this. But um, one one important thing um, that affected him throughout his entire life, and he even said this himself, he really got a um, when he was nine years old, his father committed suicide, mm. and um, it, they lived in the Bronx, and then eventually moved to Los Angeles to, to sort of escape that cloud. The family needed to get away, and um, it's something he he never seemed to have recovered from. It was, you know, obviously a very big trauma, right. and he, he had a very fractious relationship with his mother too as a result of that, and just mm. because. She, I think there's a combination of her being sort of overbearing and, and never satisfied, but also very protective because she was worried about him. 
Mm. So it created this, it created this sense of insecurity in him that um, in an odd way drove him to be a perfectionist and drove him to success. Right. So that's a part of his personality that, that, you know, he, he, it's going to come up later um, and manifest in different ways. Got you. So, I mean, that kind of makes sense now because I believe it is in Ronnie Spector's book where she talks about how he was a unable to, to give love and accept love. And I wonder if that, you know, those early, you know, you know, years dealing with the, the, you know, the death of his father and a overbearing mother or a protective mother. I mean, things like that can, can cause such things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, for, so I'm go glad ahead. I was, no, no, go ahead. I was going to no, say but, just, um, the teddy bears record, you know, as we all know, went to number one right. and uh, a huge accomplishment for, for, I think they, they said they spent a hundred dollars. I mean, it's really just cheap uh, production, but um, it was an American bandstand. It was, it was a, you know, big hit, big deal. He was unfortunately unable to capitalize on that mm. and decided to move to New York and uh, managed to get an introduction to Lieber and Stoller who signed to a contract, to, kind of took him under their wing. And um, one of the things that uh, Lieber said about him was that he noted that he had that strong jazz guitar discipline. So mm. working with Barney Kessel, again, had a big effect on his attitude toward how he would approach music. Gotcha. So let's let's jump. Uh, let's flash forward just a touch a little bit more, sure. and let's, let's stick with you know him. You know, getting together with Lester uh, Sill to to form what uh, Phyllis Records, and um, just in creating that 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 wall of sound that you know he'll be remembered for for probably the rest of time, you know, it's right, just, right. you know, discovering or, or not discovering, I'm sorry, but creating that wall of sound. And, you know, the fact that he's pretty much the youngest person to head a recording studio, would that be the right way to say it? Well, a, a record label, I guess. A record label. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Record label. Yeah. Yeah. He was born in 19, December 26, 1939. And right. um, so, and then by 61, he has formed this label with Lester Stoll. Mm -hmm. And, and then they have He's a Rebel the next year, which right. is the first really big, I mean, he has things he's done before then. So he's moved back to, to Los Angeles from New York, obviously, by the way, mm -hmm. and, and has formed this label. And um, so, yeah, He's a Rebel is really the one where he begins establishing this sound. And it develops over the next few years and he refines it, but he's pretty much, pretty much got a handle on how to use the studio at this point. Mm. Okay. Um, as an instrument, and and at the time he's not calling it the wall of sound. What he calls it are little symphonies for the kids. That's how he describes right. his. Um, and 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 he 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 describes it as a as a Wagnerian approach to mm -hmm. to arrangements, uh, um, which means he's he's taking an orchestral approach as a producer and he's layering. And he's combining instruments. That's a really, a really important part of his technique. Is that, and this is, you know, anyone who's done orchestral composition or studied studied the way composers, um, you know, someone like Ravel is a great example of this. People, the way they use instruments, combine instruments. Spector did this in a pop context. He would take, for instance, a, a piano and a harpsichord, several pianos and a harpsichord, and combine them and balance them so that. Uh, it would create a particular sound. It would sound like one sound. Okay. Or he would take piano and guitar and electric guitar, maybe combine that. Sound. Mm. 
Um, so he was he was combining all of this, and then he wanted to obviously his you know his aesthetic was always back to mono. He wanted to control the you know the mix, but mono also jammed everything together. So there wasn't really any separation. He didn't want that separation. Gotcha. Wow, amazing stuff. Um, you know the the cast. I mean, the, some of the acts that uh, that they signed to that label. Um, I guess I guess they would you would say that they had their made their big break with with this label, like such as the you know the Ronettes, the Righteous Brothers, Ike and Tina Turner, uh, Darling Love, and 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 the Crystals. Um, so he wrote a lot of the material for them as well, right? Right, right. He was working with. Um... He, he, he made some of those contacts in New York with um, and King and Greenwich, those kind of people, the real building people. Okay. Um, and uh, you guys might know a little bit more about, the, I mean, I've, I've gone over this, but it's not fresh in my memory. So mm -hmm. the, as far as, but he did, he did have a hand in, in writing a lot of these songs, River Deep, Mountain High, especially. Um, and, and, You've lost that love and feeling. That love and feeling, of, right? Yeah, yeah. Comes up with that that sort of yeah. that bridge thing, mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, he's he's involved in all aspects of of creating the song, from the songwriting to the arranging production. Gotcha. Now, do you do you do you know the how the, they were able to? Um, Phil was able to, to 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 meet the Beatles in you know in that early '60s period, and then have the the Ronettes end up with they toured with them, right? It was in '64 or '66 that they did the tour with with uh, the think Beatles? It's six, think it's '64 again. I'm not '66. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah. I'm not fresh up on this, but Spectre was in London um, just before the Beatles flew over the first for the first time to the U.S., mm -hmm. and I think he just showed up at a at a party. Um, mm. I think I have this right. Um, and kind of in, invited himself over in the flight. And he hated flying. And one of the things that he said is like, the, these guys can't crash. Like, <laughs> it's safe. Like, this is this is the best bet in the world, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, and and he he made sure to to be with them on that plane. I think he you know uh, he wanted. He, he was he was very much you know, it was very much uh, on his mind to to. Where the you know the hits were, the people were, and and he was very conscious of his image, right? Certainly, this whole time. Gotcha. So unfortunately, um, uh, the the label you know, filters. I mean, it goes kaput. I mean, it doesn't last very long. I think uh, it ends in '67. Um, I want to say, and uh, he retires in '66. But let's just jump. Let's talk about some. I because I. I I think it's not really clear because I mean, obviously we're not there. Um, how is it that he comes back to London to, to meet up with the Beatles? Was that an Alan Klein decision? Do we know if, if, if the others had a hand in deciding whether or not to, to bring him in to work with uh, it, it a seems potential like an Let Al It Be product, project? It's, it seems like an Alan Klein thing because at that point he's looking around, he's taking you know management of the band in 69 and he's looking around for projects, looking mm. for anything they can release. And there's Get Back, um, which has gone on for months. And there's you know, there many mixes they can use in film. It's not in any kind of a shape. So he activates that. And um, George, George had actually said uh, years later, he, he remembered that. Um, can you guys hear me? Am I, yeah, am I? yeah. You're still kind of breaking up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I can this. hear Is you, though. Better? 
Much better. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's okay. good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Move. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, Spectre had was involved with Klein, and um, the best I've been able to piece together is that he was he was looking to start the second act of his career because, as you say, he had retired, and essentially because he had done River Deep Mountain High, and the record flopped in America, mm. uh, and reached number eighty eight. Um, and it really had a profound negative effect on him. He, he was crushed because he put everything into this and he thought, sure, right. it was going to be a hit. It was going to top. You've lost a different feeling. And, and then he just closed the doors and basically retired for a couple of years. And when he came back in 69, then he's sort of looking around for, you know, he did the Sonny Charles and the Checkmates limited single, um, Black Pearl, and that was a hit. And there's an interview, actually, I have a note here, uh, they did with Ro Rolling Stone magazine in April of 1969. Oh, and uh, he met, he's, John Winter is asking him about um, acts like the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan, how he would produce them. And he, he brings up the Beatles and he says, I would like to record them in a certain way because again, other than what they do themselves, there's nobody. I don't know how influential their producer, their producer is, I am sure they have a great deal of respect for him, and he's the fifth Beatle in all that. But I don't think he thinks the way I would think. Their ideas are so overpowering that you just sort of go along with them and you end up with something groovy. This is this is in in April, and the the that piece is released in in uh, November, I think. Um, and he he does an interview. He did a couple of interviews with music magazines in uh, in London. So it's on his mind. You know, it's he's clearly got ideas, right? And I think the connection with Klein is is basically was saying, well, you know, you want to do this, come on over, you know, meet mm. with him and, and see what happens. Cool. All right. Well, I I'm gonna hand it off something? to you right now, Ken. <laughs> yeah. Hand it off to I you just, right now. I just wanted to say on the other podcast show that I do, things we said today, we talked about this. Our last show was all on Phil Spector, and Alan Cozen had said that the Beatles actually had a meeting in late 1969. And this was with Alan Klein and they had all agreed to have Phil Spector produce uh -huh. Let It Be. This was done before Instant Karma, before okay. Phil Spector got involved with it. So they had all agreed to that beforehand. Mm. Interesting. So, uh, yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't found uh, information about that. So that's good to know. And Spector was a client of Klein's. So he brought mm. him along for yeah. that. So, yeah. When, when did I, you say that was, Ken? It was late 69. I'm not sure which month. Okay. All right. Because I'm hoping that would probably be in the uh, the A is for Apple book then, uh, hopefully in the next uh, volume four coming out soon. So hmm. hopefully they would have more information on that. Okay. Well, before we talk about Let It Be, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit because you were talking about the songwriting, Jason. And I was really curious because like you said, uh, he worked with the great real building songwriting teams. And, you know, you're talking about Carol King and Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil, and then Phil Spector's name is there on the songwriting credits. Was he really, I mean, you mentioned you've lost that love and feeling and writing the bridge. Was he really that involved as a songwriter or did he get more credit for that because of the big contribution he made as a producer? He was generally there, uh, you know, River Deep Mountain High is something that he, he, um, you know, he, he worked on hands on with them to write. Uh, mm. 
And but there is there is one case um, I'm going to say if you if you only buy one Phil Spector book, let it be this one. It's in this book. Um, okay. He he tried to talk to the Righteous Brothers um, about their involvement, and they didn't wanna, they didn't respond to him. But one um, I don't think it was Bill Manley. Um, it might have been one, one of them wrote him a, a handwritten note all in, in capital letters. So it looked very terse and, and angry. And uh, he said that for the B side of that record, the two of them sat down and wrote a song in two minutes on the piano and, and they recorded it just to have a B side. And when the record came out, they looked and Phil Spector had stuck his name oh, in there to get a songwriting credit. And, <laughs> uh, and he said, that's all you need to know about Phil Spector, how I feel about Phil Spector. Is, wow. is so, so I was wondering if that was done. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was absolutely done by a lot of producers in the 50s and 60s because you know they had the power to do things like that. Like Norman Petty. Uh, yeah. And the fact that, that people like like George Martin didn't do that yeah. is in credit to his honesty and his integrity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did he talk at all throughout the 60s about what he thought of the Beatles? I know what you just said about, you know, their music could be overpowering. Did he express, you know, a, a lot of respect for the group as they were constantly changing and evolving? I hadn't found many interviews. I Honestly, I hadn't done a lot of research of, uh, in 64, 65, 66. I think he was so consumed with his own career. Uh, and a lot of the, the pieces are about him. Him, you know that famous Tom Wolf essay mm-hmm. um, uh, is you know that's sort of indicative of a lot of the writing about him. The the in the Rolling Stone interview that I just quoted from, uh, just before he said that he talked about how brilliant they were, and thought that Lennon and McCartney were two of the, two of the greatest singers in rock and roll. If mm-hmm. So he had he had tremendous amount of respect for them. I don't know in terms of like between 64 when he first met them and, and ongoing, but I think he was probably uh, certainly aware of what they were doing. He, he, had his, he had his ears out for everything. Yeah. Can you talk about, um, was Phil Spector an influence on the Beatles themselves? I can pinpoint one example of something George Harrison said, and this was in the Beatles anthology, and he was talking about his song, Think for Yourself, and that on uh, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, who Phil Spector produced, um, they did a recording of Zippity Doodah, mm-hmm. which had a uh, distorted guitar in it. And he wanted to have that kind of sound for Think for Yourself. And, that, and that's how you had the, the fuzz box with the bass, the distorted sound for that. Are there examples you can give of Phil Spector being an influence as a producer or, or in any other way on the group? I, I I was thinking about this because I know we you know, we emailed about it before and I I can't think like that's a good specific example yeah. that you gave I can't think of anything you know specific like that. I think it's sort of, sort of a general influence they obviously loved girl group you know, records they yeah. were listening to all of that stuff they were listening to early Motown um, so you know they were sponges and so they were soaking everything up around them. Uh, all the records, all the art, all the movies, all the, you know, whatever they can get their hands on. And um, so I, I, I have racked my brain and I haven't been able to come up with anything uh, concrete like 
like you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more, you know, my impression is that it's it's more an awareness of what he was doing and being excited by that and probably responding just like they were responding to a lot of things. But I'm I'm sure there are more concrete examples like that. I just yeah. don't, I don't happen to know. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I know that they had great admiration for him. Um, you know, yeah. one interview that John gave, he referred to uh, River Deep Mountain High as River Deep Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and for the sure. for the U.S. release of that album, uh, George Harrison wrote a testimonial, but when it was a sticker mm-hmm. on uh, the album, he said River Deep Mountain High is, I think he said, the most perfect, perfect song. You know, it can't be opposite. So he, you know, he was willing to like put his name on the sticker that goes on the album mm. to be released. So, um, yeah, they they absolutely admired him. Mm. Can you talk about "Let It Be" and and um, how everything was done putting together that album? Because after the Glenn Johns mixes, was he just given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted to do? Do you know if the Beatles said, "Well, you got to have these songs in it"? I mean, we're so used to the album now, the way that it is. Did they say, you must have two of us, you must have Dig a Pony, whatever. Did he select any of the songs? Uh, forgetting about the production part, but I mean, right. just that my, my impression is that he just took the takes that Glenn Johns had worked with. He didn't, he didn't listen through all the tapes. He just listened to the takes that Glenn Johns uh, had. And it's a really my impression I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, but you know, these are good enough. We can, I can begin working with this. And so then he began polishing those tracks. That was the album. And in January, they had gone in, um, all George and Randall had gone and recorded by me and overdubs. So um, he had, you know, he had an extra track to work with and then he had the extra work that George had done on For You Blue. So he was basically handed all of that material and said, make an album out of this. Mm. Uh, that's the impression I get from, you know, from, from Mark Lewison's book and then looking at what the final result was, comparing that to what Glenn Johns had done. But the decision to include Across the Universe, put that in there, and um, to not have Don't Let Me Down, which I think, you know, a lot of people keep asking, why wasn't Don't Let Me Down on there? And I'm, I'm guessing that it's because it was on the Hey Jude album, mm. which had yeah, just come that, out a few months before. So, right, that might be a reason. Um, I don't. I don't think Spectre had any say in that. I think that was more of a Beatles thing. Like this is what we're going to put on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, he. He. I think he was more concerned with how to make this into a viable album, just the material he had at hand. Right. Um, and I, I personally think he did a great job. I mean, I've, we've all heard the Glenn John mixes, and, and personally, they they don't really do anything for me. I think mm. Spectre did just really, you know, I'm not a big fan of arbitrations on, on the winding road, like, like I'm sure Paul, you know, uh, carries that great hard to say. But um, you know, I, I agree with him there, and and I think. You know, the simple presentations would have been better in those cases without the orchestrations. But um, as far as is just mixing and polishing and cleaning them up, I think the tracks sound, sound better than 
than they had in the previous 12 months. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I had trouble hearing what you just said. Yeah. Was it about oh, the long I'm and winding road? Yeah, lo long okay. and winding road. You're not a fan of what Phil Spector did to it, or or what? Yeah, I was. I I agree with Paul that the orchestration is is a, is you know heavy handed and sort of uh, over, over the top. So um, yeah, but otherwise, I think what he did to to, um, to clean up those mixes to clean up the sound uh -huh. was very effective. Yeah, a lot of fans seem to think that, you know, it's so overproduced. And really and truly, when you get down to it, there's only four songs on there that he really did a lot of work on. Right. <laughs> so, right. Um, you know, there's I Me Mine, Let It Be, Long and Winding Road, and Across the Universe. Right. You know, so, you know, overall, you're very pleased with the Phil Spector production of the album. O overall, I mean, I think the orchestrations are a bit much. Um, but in general, I think what he did was to make it a palatable. The mm -hmm. Glenn Johns mixes to me never really cohered and, and they're sort of lost under a lot of reverb. You know, it's, it's sort of sort of cavernous, you know. Mm -hmm. um, gotcha. That's that's my personal take. That's you know, that's how I've always heard it. Right. Yeah. Well with this but, let it be box set coming out. Yeah. It's in, it's infinite what you could do <laughs> with, yeah. with so many hours of takes and takes and takes. And, uh, you know, as I've pointed out on my most recent shows, we're living in a time where a lot of people like the stripped down versions of songs and less production. And so for people like those, they look at what Phil did as, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, really destroying great songs. I don't look at it that way. In fact, I'm a big fan of what he did with, the long and winding road and yeah. i've always said that if something's a success and the single itself was a success it hit number one in america that sure means that the public heard it the people liked it and the album went to number one that way and yeah. i don't adhere to this opinion that everything the beatles did went to number one because it's not true you know they had singles here in the states that didn't hit number one so right. the public then didn't have this this feeling of overproduction or anything like that and, um, you know, that's how they responded. And, you know, there are a lot of fans now that think, oh, it would be a lot better if it was less production. But I also understand Paul's point of view because this was all done without his approval and it went out that way. And I was questioning on my other podcast, I thought maybe it went out that way partly because they had a deadline to meet because of the film coming out, although uh, Alan Cozen said they still could have pushed it back and just did a remix. Mm. So I don't know what, what your feeling is about that, for that particular song anyway. Well, uh, Ringo would later say that Paul had listened to the, the uh, dates and said so he, he said he didn't hate it. And I, I think, I don't know, I, in, in writing about this, I was really thinking about what is, what is Paul's mindset here? Because he's, he's really cut himself off from Apple and the Beatles and, and he hadn't talked to John in months. And he's really focused on his own album. It's, it's sort of like his coping mechanism for, for what they're going through this, this sort of hot stress period. And um, at one point he changed his phone number and didn't tell anybody. So Alan Klein and Spectre couldn't get in touch with him. And this is just right on the eve of of the release, you know, they're, they're going to start pressing records and, and, um, Spectre sent him a note 
sent them all a note and said, there's anything that you want to change, let me know, you know, big stuff is going to be harder, but little things are easier. Mm. And he, um, and Paul didn't, didn't get in touch in time. And so by the time he, he acts and decides that he wants something changed, they're already pressing records. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's the, that's the timeline that I put together. Um, just from looking at, at various sources. So I think, you know, some of it was Paul maybe avoiding having to face this sort of big crisis, this big decision. Um, he admitted, you know, that he was sort of going through a nervous breakdown and, and it was a very tough time for him emotionally. So I can understand he, you know, he was maybe pushing this away and not wanting to deal with it. Um, so, I, th I think those are the those are the factors that were at play. Mm -hmm. And Specter in that note seems really amenable to you know whatever you guys want me to do, I'll do. You know, I'll I'll try to accommodate you. And uh, so Paul, he gave Paul the opportunity to say something. So um, Paul never did sign off or, or approve. Let it be as a whole. Then. Well, uh, Ringo said that he. You know, when he talked to him after they got the the test pressings, mm -hmm. and and he said he his I think his exact line was he didn't hate it like he didn't say oh, this is terrible you know okay. these strings on my song and all this right um, so you know he, he maybe wasn't enthusiastic about it but he didn't trash it and lose his mind and you know right and and, and feel like he's been taken away from it that was a that was a later development. He's also put out in his solo career several different arrangements of the Long and Winding Road. And when he performs live, it's very similar to the Phil Spector right. arrangement. Right, yeah. right. Which is, I mean, that sort of speaks for itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. And also something that, again, I brought up in the other show, but um, the arrangement that was done was, was not Phil Spector. It was Richard Hewson. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. nobody ever points that out. Right. really because it wasn't it wasn't phil Spector's idea to have a harp <laughs> you know <laughs> on the record um but then you could also say phil had he oversaw everything and he could have mixed certain instruments up hotter than than he should have but you know how do you feel about that between the arranger and the producer i think you know my impression from reading about how Spector worked is that he communicated with the arranger what he wanted um, and maybe wouldn't give specific, you know, like Ivan's doing this, Harp doing this, and, you know, but, but I think he would give general instructions. And I don't think it was any mistake that there was 50 musicians, you know, mm -hmm. on, that, on that recording. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like he said, oh, just give me a small ensemble. And then the arranger came back with this arrangement for 50 I, mean, I don't think that happened. I, I think Spectre probably has, uh, like, broadly, this is what I want. Um, whether he sketched, you know, anything out, I don't know. I interviewed John Barham by email, uh, who, who did the spring arrangements for All Things Must Pass, and we'll talk about you know, that dynamic when we get there. But um, he, he worked a little bit on, I think he did the, I'm forgetting now, he did the vocal arrangement for Long and Winding Road or Across the Universe. I forget. I, I'm blanking on this, sorry. Okay. Um, 
but he so he had some he had some role in that himself and and he apparently was just sort of left to his own devices for for what he was writing okay he said he said he didn't he didn't meet specter at that time so it was probably through richard hewson mm. and so you know my again my impression is that he was given a certain amount of freedom to score the way he wanted to within yeah. you know certain parameters that specter had set. Yeah, and and Paul didn't take it out on Richard Houston because he ended up working with him again. Right, right, right. Exactly. On, on Thrilling, Thrilling, and, Thrillington, and he also did some work on wildlife. Yeah, you know. So, uh, yeah, we're still I mean, having I, some trouble hearing you, Jason. Uh, yeah, I'm just letting you know you're cutting out a bit, but uh -huh. just letting you know. Uh -huh. Okay, is it is it help when I when I'm louder? Yes. Oh yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. you know. I think when you're sitting back too, I think it's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back like this? Yeah, there you go. That's better? Is this better? Yes. Oh, much okay. better. Right now. Okay. Yes. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do the whole thing over. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I mean, I could get my podcast microphone and we could really, you know, yeah. answer this. <laughs> okay. All well, right. Let me... Uh, uh, let me pass you over to Kit now. All right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the solo years. That's of course that's what our our podcast is all about. And uh, so when the Beatles uh, break up, well, uh, you know, of course, Specter goes on to work with uh, with uh, John Lennon, and George Harrison, and we'll we'll talk about. Uh, uh, George, I always forget yeah. which, but there we go. Uh, George, in just a second <laughs> there here. He uh, there yeah. he is. He's peeking behind me. But yeah. um, we'll talk about, uh, but we'll talk about John first because th this, the John Lennon Phil Spector um, working relationship has always kind of fascinated me because the the two of them, you know, I mean, they obviously did some great work together, but they also were such strong personalities and i i've heard outtakes uh and we'll get to the rock and roll sessions in just a second because that's a whole other level mm, um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> definitely yeah uh but you know even before that i mean they really um i mean they could really be you know screaming at each other and on yet they they really put out wonderful work i mean imagine of course being a, a prime example right you know what what do you think was you know how do you think they could work together i mean what what do you think each of them brought to the table i mean you know what what drew them to each other to to work together that's a really good question i think i mean I'm, specter had tremendous respect for john i think um but he also knew that it was beneficial to him his professional career to ingratiate himself with john and one thing Klaus Vorman told me is that um, that Phil was always very kind to Yoko. He recognized her importance in John's life. He he said that in interviews, you know, subsequent interviews, that um, you know he recognized that that Yoko was such a big deal and and that she deserved respect. And he actually spoke out in her defense about how people had mistreated her for years. Um, so I think. I think some of it was, you know, strategy where he's, you know, I have to be nice to the wife, but also recognizing that she played an important role and she wasn't just, you know, she wasn't just the wife, she was somebody that John was you know, close friends with, deeply involved with creatively. 
So there's that, there's that aspect. Um, as far as what drew them to each other, um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, again, mutual respect, certainly, for what the other did. Uh, I think, you know, everybody was impressed at the instant karma session when he, mm. you know, he, George said that, you know, he stopped by the Apple offices and on his way to, to the session and he saw Phil there and he said, Phil, you know, come on. And Phil said, oh, right. I can't, I haven't been invited. He's like, oh, come on. So he drags him to the studio. And um, John would later that year say, oh, well, I told Phil, I want it, I want it just simple, right? You know, just, just 50, 50s, but George remembered that Phil was kind of hanging out in the back of the, uh, the control room, not saying anything. And they're just playing, they're, you know, running through the song and George comes in, he's like, do something, like produce, right. you know? <laughs> so Spectre steps up and, and none of them, no, apparently nobody knew that he was there, that the players, Alan White and um, Klaus Foreman and Klaus said he heard this, this voice coming over the, the, the talkback. And he's like, who is that? He didn't know he didn't know what was going on, but the guy's giving instructions and he's telling Alan White to take his cymbals off his drums and uh, he takes control of the, the session and they get a take and then they come in and listen to it. And um, I said that that he had a Phil had a shirt on that said something like I think it had his name on full spectrum or full spectrum on it. And and he said the playback was outrageously loud. It was just overwhelming. And he said the difference between like you play it in a studio and you hear it acoustically, the difference between that and going in the control room and hearing it produced, even at that sort of like basic track level, was was really impressive. So I think you know that that process of putting that together and how he took charge of that session made an impression on all of them. And you know, obviously George, because he would be he would use the album. You know, next, but um, it it obviously had an impact on John. He right. never never heard his voice that way. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, famously, John didn't like the sound of his own voice, and so he probably liked that as well. And also, I, I was thinking as as you know, I was preparing my notes for tonight as well that you know, even when John didn't work with Phil Spector. Uh, you know, when he produced himself, I mean, things like Number Nine Dream, um, Mind Games. I yes. mean, you could definitely hear that that full specter influence. Right. I mean, with that echo and 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 you know, so forth. Um, when uh, you know, when you talked about instant karma, I think that's a that's a perfect example um, to take us through you know, what the wall of sound is exactly, you know, what, how did he achieve that, uh, with that, what is called the wall of sound? Well, instant karma is a little different, um, mm -hmm. in, in that it's not the classic Phil Spector wall of sound. He's yeah. using, he's using a lot of tape delay and he's using reverb, you know, in a creative way. And he, and he compressed on the voice. I think that's where you get that effect, mm -hmm. a really powerful effect on his voice. Um, the wall of sound, though, there was there's a um, a producer named Phil Chapman who I read an interview with when I was doing this research, and he has done he studied a lot about how Spectre created the sound, and one of the things as I, as I mentioned before is that he was combining instruments, he was layering, um, but he would begin with 
and this will sound very familiar when we when we talk about all things must pass and bad finger on acoustic guitar he would start with several acoustic guitar players playing the rhythm and then he would add the bass and then he would build up this really strong rhythm track and that would be this kind of like drone in the background throughout these records so he would build on top of that he would he would you know, layer his instruments on top of that and um, you know, we'll see that he he starts to use that on all things must pass as well. He doesn't use that on instant karma. That's you know okay. keyboard song, but um, in terms of tape delay and in terms of uh, just getting that that sort of reverby sound. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing he did do on instant karma that that is very similar to the, the classic wall of sound technique is that he layered the piano. So he had them all, when right. he did the overdubs, had them come in and layer, you know, each one of them is playing maybe an electric piano or a grand piano. So you have these layers of pianos built up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, uh, and this is, by the way, folks, what is so great about his producing the Beatles podcast, because he, uh, Jason really explains these things very well because I've I've you know read some other things about uh, the wall of sound and and sometimes it can be extremely you know technical and you get bound you know bogged down with technical details and right. Jason is really good at explaining just the, <laughs> the detail but you know you. in English <laughs> what it thank is so, so thank you Jason yeah. I really appreciate yeah. that you're you welcome. Know, you're welcome. I feel like I understand it a little better now so this so really so folks check yeah. out his podcast we'll we'll plug yeah. it again later but I just want to Absolutely. mention this this is a perfect example of, of what his podcast is about. Mm. So anyway, all right, let's get to those rock and roll sessions. Because, uh, <laughs> We're just jumping ahead, huh? Right. Let, let's just get to it because we, you know, we, we need to get to all things bus pass, but let's, let's jump ahead. So, you know, we have these wonderful examples. I mean, imagine, um, you know, is my, my personal favorite um, collaboration of theirs along with instant karma. But, uh, but then we get to the rock and roll sessions and uh, uh, things don't go quite as well, do they? <laughs> no, not quite. Yes. <laughs> so Does anybody else want to start on this? Because I have, <laughs> I have things to say. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I wrote today, I was making my notes and I wrote, I said, it's tempting to say that, that these sessions started because of a lawsuit and then ended with a bunch of lawsuits, which isn't exactly <laughs> accurate. That's that's a pretty good summary, though. <laughs> but it, but it, but it but it is a cloud. There there is this sort of like cloud of of lawyers hanging over these <laughs> sessions, um, which is not not good. Uh, I don't care what's happening. But then there's a lot of really bad behavior um, going on at these sessions. You know, it's like John and Phil are trying to outdo each other. Um, so, God, where begin? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's start with the the um, John had actually planned to to do this record, which uh, on the recording the initial recording sheet say back to mono. So and he and he's talked Spectre into producing it. He's gone out to L.A. you know from New York, and he's he's staying out there. And he and he says you know Phil, you can have total control. You can do this the way you did it. At, you know, the Phyllis records, um, you can produce everything, you do the arrangements, you have the musicians, everything. So he finally talked him into it. And 
And it was maybe the worst thing he could have done because at that point, giving Phil Spector total control was not, um, not a good idea. Um, he had he had begun drinking heavily and and using uppers at this point, which he, which hadn't been a constant thing for him. That's something he brought out years later. Is that he really in the '60s when he was running a, a record label, he was working all the time. So. He was not drinking. He was not doing any kind of drugs. He was very much in, in control and very focused. But by this point, by late 1973, he's drinking all the time and he's unreliable and um, he's carrying a gun everywhere. Um, so it's 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 kind of a it's it's off to a bad start and just doesn't get any better. Mm. Nope. So. They start at A&M Studios in Los Angeles and they do 11 sessions. Um, they do 11 sessions in Los Angeles, but they start October 17th and by November 28th, they are thrown out of A&M Studios because of shenanigans. Um, and somebody spills uh, whiskey on a bottle of whiskey on the control panel, you know. Um, Phil shows up in, in a, a surgeon's outfit, maybe as a reference to John calling himself Dr. Winston O'Boogie, maybe just because Phil thought it would be fun to wear a surgeon's outfit, you know, scrubs and whatever. Perfectly um, normal. Perfectly normal. <laughs> that was um, normal in the 70s. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he was on his, you know, on his way to showing a Rocky Horror. Who knows? Sure. No, that, wasn't, that, was, that actually wasn't out yet, was it? Um, no. <laughs> no, too early. Um, but he, and then he, you know, he fires a gun in the studio, um, and and John freaks out and says, "You're never going to kill me, kill me." But you know, I need my ears. Um, and you know, there's that take of just because, which is you know, really a an incredible arrangement. Um, but there's that drunken take that you can hear if you Google it. It's on YouTube, yep. um, where John is just you know. He's a total mess. He's just sloppy and not hitting the notes, and he's saying obscene things, and you know it's, it's really, really ugly. Um, so it's it's a mess, and unbeknownst to John, Spectre was taking the tapes away every night to his to his house, and um, and when it reaches the point where. They just they they can't go any farther, you know, and they've sort of gotten too far out of hand. Um, he tries to get tapes from Phil, and he can't reach him. He can't get to him. So the project is is effectively in limbo. And then John goes back to New York. Um, well, he produces Pussycats with Harry Nielsen, right. and then he records an entire album, Walls and Bridges. Yes, yep. <laughs> and Somewhere around this point, he does get the tapes back from Spectre, but but Capital has to pay Spectre ninety three thousand dollars in order to get the tapes back. Wow! And um, yeah, let me find this quote. It was such an odd number um, too. I was going to say that's very yeah. specific. <laughs> it's, it's what it's what I guess he was sent, he was billing the record company. Mm. Um, and he was saying that these were the production expenses. That he oh, heard. okay, okay. Mm, yeah, I thought enough. that. That's oddly specific. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so he he did call John at one point and said, "I have the John Dean tapes." That's all he said to him. 
and you know, John Dean is Nixon's counsel. And he's, right. he's implicated in, you know, the cover up of Watergate and the, the Nixon tapes, right? So he's making a really weird, sarcastic, uh, this is this is somewhere in maybe early 74, it seems like. Um, inspectors in a car accident in March and has a lot of, you know, lacerations on his face and scalp. And that's why he starts wearing, apparently wearing wigs in later years. Uh, he's, he's pretty badly beat up. So finally, they, they, uh, they make an arrangement. Capital makes an arrangement with him to pay him this money. Um, and this, if, you're, if you want to know more about this stuff, this is an excellent book, Maybe You're a Rich Man by Stan Sucher. Hmm. Talks all about suing the Beatles for fun and profit. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the subtitle. And it goes into great detail about all of these cases from the Come Together suit you know, which which has to do with the rock and roll sessions, the okay. sweet board, all these other all these other um, stuff. But he he it interviewed um, one of the executives from Capital, and he said he had sent one of his his executives over to get the tapes from Phil, and he waited for him for ninety minutes. And when Phil showed up, he was carrying an axe. So the guy ran ran away. <laughs> calls and he said uh you know phil showed up but uh we're not getting the tapes so eventually they had they he said they had to send a u.s marshal over to to actually physically take possession of the tapes from Spectre. wow even though even though he had agreed to this so um yeah so that's that was how the first phase ended and once john got the tapes back he's he's working on walls and bridges he decides to finish that yeah. and then once that's over with, he he goes into the studio in New York and runs through 11 tracks there pretty quickly within about a week's time. Yeah. And that finishes off the album. Yeah. So only four Spectre's tracks end up on the finished record and then the rest of John are produced by gotcha. with, a, with a much smaller control ensemble, basically the walls and bridges. Gotcha. Yeah, it's funny when when I was a teenager listening to rock and roll, I wouldn't have known the difference between the songs that John produced and the songs that Phil Spector produced, and now it's so apparent. Yes, <laughs> yes. So you can tell. You know, yeah. you listen to Sweet Little Sixteen, and it's definitely got. If you got so many musicians all packed on on one song, when you have that feeling of it, right. you know, then then you know it's Phil Spector. <laughs> yes, and you can't catch yes. me in those songs. Yeah, really, really dense. Yeah, gotcha. But, but I, th I, you know, like I said, I think the arrangement for just because is really, I, I like that personally. I mean, mm. it's it's different, but there's something interesting in there, um, to me. But obviously, the and there are also there's a rehearsal uh, tape that floats around from the day before they started recording. So the 21st is the rehearsal day. And they're just running through songs very loosely. And those have such a great feel to them. Hmm. And you lose a little bit of that in the actual sessions. It's still there. The arrangements are still there. But um, it, to me, it just feels looser. They're rehearsing. They're not really trying to get a finished take. And there's some energy in those, those recordings that um, you know, sort, of, sort of, to me, gets at what John was going for in those sessions. You know, that, that kind of rock and roll energy. Yeah. For some reason, I don't know why, 
many of the songs that that John worked on with Phil Spector, the, these oldies, were he slowed them down in the arrangement, like yeah. just because, like Sweet Little Sixteen, yeah. Be My Baby is much slower yeah. and much slower. To know her is to love her very slow. Yeah, it's yeah. powerful that way, yeah. but I think the people who are used to hearing it much faster, it could be a disappointment. Yeah, and I I always contrast this record in in my own mind with that that oldies jam that uh, that John and Klaus and Ringo do on the Plastic Mono Band sessions, you know, the, the outtakes where, you know, it's just John with uh, the electric guitar, you know, fuzzed up and his vocal really, you know, got slapback echo yeah. and just really simple propulsive playing. And John is just in great voice, you know, in, in, those, in those sessions. And, you know, I, I always thought like, what if, what if he had somehow been able to channel that energy in the rock and roll sessions, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, some speed, some energy, some power, you know? Right. Um, he, 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 he was still a great singer, obviously, but, you know, there, there's an energy that's kind of missing from, from a lot of these, a lot of these mm. rankings, a lot of these performances. Yeah. Wow. Great. I agree. And uh, our good uh, our good friend and, and uh, faithful viewer Tom Brennan points out uh, some of Phil Spector's studio banner with John Lennon from the Rock and Roll Sessions is on the John Lennon anthology box set. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Right. yes. That is yeah. true. Yeah, Definitely. they're they're interesting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> to say the least. Exactly. So all right, Tom, well, so, I'm gonna okay. pass it pass it back to you. All right, well, let's let's jump to uh, the, the the great all things must pass, and I'm curious if that impression that um, that Phil Spector left on John Lennon during that Instant Karma uh, session also did the same thing for George in a way to make him want to, you know, and have George work with him on the All Things Must Pass uh, record. I think it did, and I think the you know George attended those mix sessions for Let It Be, and I think he saw Spector at work. And he got an impression of you know, how he worked, not just not just producing Instant Karma, but also how he sort of ran the session, and and, and he was in control, and and really knew what he was doing. So, um, and one one sort of clue to that is that I think it's in 1969, late 1969. Uh, I forget the exact date of where this quote comes from, but uh, I was looking at it today. George is talking about eventually doing an album for himself. And he says, you know, I'll probably just bash it out. Something on a plastic on band, you know, I'd love to do, I'd love to have my home studio and do it that way. And clearly by May, 1970, he is thinking a little more elaborately than just bashing out a bunch of songs. Um, Cause he's got Spectre and he's already getting, he, John Barham told me that, uh, that, George invited him to Friar Park one night for dinner. Uh, and after dinner, he just picked up the guitar and started playing through all the songs that would be on all things in my past. And he said, I think it's because he wanted me to be, you know, he wanted to get my response to these songs and he was sort of preparing me to be involved. Mm. Right. Because um, you get he, that sense um, during that uh, Living in a Material World documentary where, you know, Phil Spector is saying, you know, he started playing me these songs and one was better than. <laughs> You know, the next one was right. better than the other. So, right. yeah. 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 And he, yeah, I mean, he did that for, for Phil Spector. Certainly he did that for John Barham. Um, 
So I, he was, I think he was testing it out, but he was also just sort of, he was starting to get out of the system now. And he, I, I, John, John Barham is a really fascinating character and I go into his history a little bit, but he had known George since 1966 and they'd been introduced by Ravi Shankar. Mm. And uh, John Barham had, he, he, he had transcribed Indian ragas for um, a performance that Ravi and Yehudi Menuhin were doing. And I think he did maybe was involved with the liner notes, but he, so he had a deep understanding of Indian music and that's where he involved. And then mm. George began to bringing him into this, like his rock world and his experimental music. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. So, um, so before then Phil has to leave the All Things Must Pass sessions for, I think, health reasons or something like that. So prior to, did, did these sessions go smoothly between George and, and, and Phil? Were there any headbutting? Do we, do we know? Prior to, um, you know, then later uh, Phil coming in during the mixing and adding his. Uh, right. The, uh, yeah, the, the impression that we've been given over the years is that Phil came in and overproduced everything and, and um, mm -hmm. was drunk a lot and, and you know, waving his gun around. And that's not true. Um, the, I spoke to John Leckie, who is the second engineer on all, all but one of the sessions. And he said he never saw Phil falling down drunk. He never saw outrageous behavior and there were no guns. He had his bodyguard around all the time. Um, and he told jokes, like Klaus told me that Phil was a very funny guy and he would, he would stop and hold, sort of hold court, you know, for a few minutes. And it, that was Phil's way of, of dealing with his own anxiety. He would use humor to sort of break things up and, and get people loosened up around him. Um, and, you know, Klaus said sometimes it would go on a little bit too long and, you know, you'd be there half an hour and you're like, well, come on, we're, you know, we got to get to work. We have to, we got to get back. But um, generally, it was a collaboration between him and George because George needed somebody behind the glass to sort of run things so George could concentrate on playing with the musicians and teaching them the songs. Gotcha. And, and it just made it easier for him to do that. The, um, he, he did come in when they, they did the first song, Wawa. They listened, came in for the playback. And George hated it immediately. He just hated the sound. He's like, we'd been, you know, we'd been in and we heard the, the, you know, the electric guitars and the bass and the drums and everything in the studio. And they heard that and they come in and he hears this like cacophony and, and he instantly didn't like it. And, and he said, Eric Clapton loved it. He says, well, you can have it on your album. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but, but he said he grew to love it and he did. And, what, what's really interesting is that he, you know, Spectre was involved in all the basic recording, all the, all the sessions over, you know, from the end of May until July, mm. when George's mother passed away. And that's when the sessions basically stopped, except for one recording after that. Um, and in that time, there's some give and take in how the, the sessions are arranged. So you start off with sort of these sort of big recordings. You start off with, with Wawa and you start off with My Sweet Lord. And uh, he does a version of Art of Dying, which is out on bootleg, which to me sounds like he is doing a classic wall of sound arrangement. Again, with the, with the acoustic guitars, mm. with the pianos stacked on top of each other, um, with, with drums without cymbals, 
you know, he's listening to it. It sounds to me like I describe it in the book as a minor key version of Be My Baby almost. It has that, it has that very, very strong um, wall of sound feel. Gotcha. So he's starting out with, you know, you have, you know, 10, 11, 12 musicians in the studio to create this sound. And isn't it pity, same, same kind of thing. And then George sort of seems to pull back on this and he thins the musicians out and he does this series of acoustic um, recordings, like uh, If Not For You and Behind That Locked Door, which are much more stripped down. Yeah. Mm. And and then and then you get these bigger tracks like "Waiting for You All" and that right. sort of, so it flows and it's like um, and some of that is because you know Derek and the Dominoes have now officially become a group on June fourteenth in the middle of these sessions and from, from then on they sort of dominate um, mm. they 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 found their spark they found their fire and and you know that's their a lot of their playing for the, it's still controlled Spectre is still I think directing them, um, but this is where the jams also start to come in too. Gotcha. Ken, we'll bring it to you. Yeah, I was wondering. You mentioned uh, John Barham. He did the whole string arrangement for "Isn't It a Pity," right? Yes, yes, he did all the string arrangements on the album. Oh, wonderful job, masterful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when it when it came to the brass, like on "What Is Life" or "The Art of Dying." Was that George's idea or did someone else suggest that? I think it was George's idea. And it was also, there's also that, that alternate take or alternate mix that's on the 30th anniversary set mm. uh, with, the, with the, the piccolo and the trumpet. Um, I forget, the, I think that's what it is. I asked John Barm about that. He said, I, don't, I didn't have anything to do with that. I think George did that himself. He had the musicians come in and, and tried to delay what he wanted with them. And he just wasn't satisfied, so he ended up not using it. Hmm. But um, what John Barham told me is that George sat with him at, a, at an old piano, at uh, an upright piano at Friar Park, and they sat and they played through all the songs, and George would play through sort of a melody line of what he wanted for the string parts. And he left it to John Barham to work out the inner voicings. So George really had more of a, a full idea of what he wanted all you know, with all the instrumentation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, the, the idea that Phil Spector overproduced this record or was, you know, there is that that big reverb sound, but again, as you know, as we know, Spector wasn't really around much during the mixing. So it's really more down to what Ken Scott and George did and that's kind of what they were drawn to. Whether it was because of the example of Phil Spector's rough mixes, um, building off of that or then they just thought this is a good idea this is this is how these sounds some of them sound best these recordings mm -hmm. sound best i want to clear up one thing because um sometimes there's confusion i know online they've been debating this with my sweet lord i've always heard that george did all the backing vocals on that song he is the george o'hara singers and then in the the um the the was it the 30th anniversary one that came out, he mentions these girls' names in the credits as though they're part of the George O'Hara singers. Do you know anything about whether or not it was all George? Because I actually wrote to Ken Scott about this and Ken said it's definitely all George. Uh, what Chris Thomas told me, um, because Chris, Chris had played on Isn't It a Pity 
and then he came in to he that was at EMI, and then he came into Trident when they were doing overdubs, and um, because they wanted to overdub something, uh, a Moog synthesizer part or something, and he walked in there playing back My Sweet Lord. And he says, he hears all these voices and all these guitars. And he goes, who is that? And George goes, that's me. So that's, I guess that confirms, you know, what Ken Scott, uh, what Ken Scott's memory was. To me, and, and you, probably, you probably read, um, you may have read this. They would slow the tape down just like they would do on Beatles sessions. And George would sing it. And then when you run it back at regular speed, that raises the pitch Okay. Of the voice. So it sounds like if you played it isolated, it's going to sound like Mickey Mouse. But when you played in the context of this larger uh, arrangement and all of these, these uh, backing vocals, all these stacked vocals, um, it, it just it gives it a, a richness. Right. That must have been a ton of work, though. Oh, yeah. Doing the backing vocals on that song. Because they were, they were still using 16 tracks. So yeah. he, he, would, he would do four tracks of vocals. They would bounce that down to one wow. track. He would, do, he would do more than one vocals. They would bounce that down to a track. So who, who knows how many times he actually overdubbed his voice. I'm wondering if you're familiar with um, just a few days ago, um, Anthony DeCurtis posted an interview that he did with Phil Spector. And it was fascinating. Yeah. It was, he said it was circa 2001. It had something to do with the 30th anniversary of Imagine. And he's comparing what it's like to work with John and with George. And, you know, you hear what Phil Spector has to say. He does not come across as a crazy man here. He's very lucid. And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting from his own perspective, from his own, you know, observances, the differences between John and George. And there's a huge contrast in working with the two. So do you want to elaborate on that? I, yeah, I think, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that Spectre would say later about working with George during All Things Must Pass is, especially with the overdubs, Spectre got to run the basic track section, the basic recording. But when mm -hmm. it came to overdubs, that was George. So he was doing these, he's, his guitar overdubs, his vocal overdubs, and there was really no room for Spectre because George is obsessed with perfectionist. He's just, you know, mm -hmm. he really what he wanted was, he seemed to want was Spectre there to kind of say, you know, is this too much? How does this sound? Do I need to do this again? And Spectre kind of gets bored. And this is when he, this is really when he starts drinking um, because he doesn't really have anything to do. And at one point he, he is, so drunk that he falls and injures his arm. Klaus told me this because Klaus would come to the overdub and mixing sessions because he lived at Friar Park at the time. And he liked the song so much, he just wanted to come hang out and hear what was happening. So he's at the studio and he said that Spectre, you know, was, was drinking too much and fell and hurt himself. And there's a, there's, I find this, I found a quote from an Apple scruff at Mojo Magazine had from 1995, I think, where they were waiting outside and suddenly she says, once we were, once we were all outside Abbey Road and the doors opened and George came out clutching Phil, he put him in a car and it sped off. We asked George if Phil was okay. Yes, he said. Well, actually, no. Phil's a bit destructive. Great producer and a really beautiful person, but very self-destructive. Wow. Yeah, so 
I don't know if those are the same event. It could be, um, but it sounds like this is where things begin to kind of fall apart. And af after this is where Phil leaves um, in August. And then he writes that five page letter once he gets the rough mixes and gives George notes on you know, what he thinks needs to be done. It's so, interesting. What I had interpreted from this interview that Anthony the Curtis did with him was that, you know, someone like John liked to work quickly and he yes. kind of knew what he wanted. Whereas yes. George, he just made you do take after take after take. And Phil interpreted that as being more insecure. Yeah. George is more insecure about his work, that he yes. would do 30 takes of My Sweet Lord and it probably drove Phil crazy. You know, it's such a such yeah. a difference between the two of them. So, yeah, no, and John John actually said he said to stop Phil from putting strings on instant karma because he wanted to keep going. And he said, he said, uh, you know, like he said he wanted that immediate, yeah, um, you know, get it done, get it done. And he actually thought that there could be a problem with Phil and George working together because he, he thought they could both sort of, he, he knew just from seeing George working in the studio in the, in the Beatles, how he could tend to really focus and be a perfectionist about those parts. Mm -hmm. So he he had a he wondered like where would this go between these two? You know, would this work? Um, but you would think if Phil is also a perfectionist, <laughs> that they Phil, would get along fine. <laughs> Phil, not really. Phil Phil really needed to he needed to command his army. He needed to have people to boss around and say, do this, do this, do this, because to him that was producing. He was sort of an autocrat. He, he saw himself as the visionary. And with George just sitting there playing guitar parts over and over and over, or, or singing these, these vocal harmonies over and over and over to get them perfect, there was nothing for Phil to do. Mm. He was just sort of sitting there listening and you know, to say yes or no. To him, that wasn't producing. Yeah. And Phil also said that um, he thought that George padded his album with so many great musicians. He did that for security, mm -hmm. you know. I, I know. I think that's true. I think he, he, had, he had talked in late 69 about having an Apple house band. And he was having people like, you know, Billy Preston come in and, and he had Klaus and he had Eric Clapton and he had, he had uh, Peter Frampton. At one point. And when he started making his own album, he just sort of brought all these people along with him because this these are the people he trusted, you know. Mm -hmm. So and but he would also let people just sort of float in and play. Like Alan Parsons said that um, you know, he came to a couple of sessions. He said anytime anybody would show up, he would tell them to get a guitar going in. So <laughs> so you know, it was very, it was very kind of open door to other musicians. Mm. Um it makes it, you know, impossible to tell anything And if George had these problems with Phil, he still kept him on for the concert for Bangladesh, Bangladesh. and yeah. for the yeah. single for Bangladesh, and yeah. for um, you know working with with Ronnie Spector for for try, try some, some buy buy some. some. So, how do you explain that? You know, he still, I guess, he thought still so highly of him. He. I, I think he thought highly of him. I think George was also, he could, he was capable of being a very generous and understanding person. Hmm. And 
in at the end of Spectre's letter from August 1970, um, his PS is, is, or he ends the letter by saying, um, you know, thank you for all you talked about. And it's clear that he's had a heart to heart with George. George is very supportive. Specter's going on to treatment, um, you know, after he sends this letter. So, he, you know, he, he's, he's telling him personal things and George is being, you know, supportive and understanding. So I think he wanted to believe that Specter was gonna get it together and he was gonna continue to be able to produce. But, he, you know, he, he, he was there for, the Bangladesh recording, but mixing over the next month, he wasn't there very much at all. Okay. He was apparently in and out of the hospital. He was in treatment. Um, and George said, uh, let's see if I can quote. He says, he says it was like having a dead man stroke on your back. Mm. So, and, and then when they convene um, at Fire Park to do the sessions for Living in a Material World, there's that great tape of them just sort of jamming, like, playing guitar together and Phil's singing these oldies and George is singing oldies and it's just really like relaxed, you know, friendly atmosphere. And and then Phil just can't keep it together. He starts drinking again and and he's not he's only really his production only makes makes the one song on that record. Yeah. So um and that's you know that's end of 72. It's very interesting. Just like I, I made the statement just now about George and Phil, and you think they get along if they're both perfectionists. At the same time, with the exception of the rock and roll sessions with John, I think John knew how to control Phil. <laughs> for for you know even the Imagine album, there are certain cases where you have that full orchestral sound, like "How Do You Sleep" or something like that. But everything was just very respectful and toned down much more so with an album like Imagine and Plastic on a Band is as stripped down as you could get. <laughs> so. Uh, and, and, Phil, and Phil really isn't on Plastic on a Band very much at all. He shows up late, you know, there's that that ad they place in the trade papers. Uh, it's like, Phil, John is ready this weekend. You know, full page ad. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it's, uh, it's in Billboard, I think it's in Cashbox. Um, and that's October 3rd. And then Phil finally shows up and he, you know, he plays piano on love. Mm. Um, and if you've heard that the session tape circulates, if you've heard that he, and I'm doing a, a, with Chip Mattinger and I have written an episode on, uh, on the love recording, the, the two sessions that created the producer. And um, it's really interesting. Phil's presence there helps him focus and get that arrangement together because before then he's just sort of playing and it's stiff and he can't quite get it. And Phil on piano, just his presence and his, their, their interplay in the studio, it seems very relaxed. It seems very warm. Phil is deferential. He's self-deprecating, of course. Um, and he, and he's, I think, you know, I think you're right. He did know how to control him. Um, and when John was in control, I think the sessions tended to go better. Obviously, when you let Spectre be in control, like in rock and roll, then they uh -huh. just sort of like, um, he loses the structure. And because that's where he was also at that point in his life, I, he was not. He doesn't seem to have been as out of control. In Imagine, um, Alan, Alan White did tell me a story uh, where he walked in. He, he remembered this as all things must pass, but I think it's imagine 
because mm -hmm. everybody else told me they didn't see any guns during All Things Must Pass. But Alan White said he walked out into the studio, into the control room, and he saw a gun sitting on his desk. And he was like, whoa, what's this? So he was st maybe starting to lean in that direction, but he was still, if you, I mean, you've seen the videos, you've heard the outtakes, he was still pretty much under wraps. And he was, he was in deference to John during those sessions. Yeah. Interesting. One yeah. last thing. Um, one song where Phil Spector's presence is really known and is a brilliant production was Happy Christmas. Yes, absolutely. What do you know about yeah. those sessions? Anything? Um, there's an article, and I, you know, I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to look over it. Um, there's a piece. I think Richard Williams was it. Richard Williams. It, and it, he's there. He's in the session. He's there, and he's seeing how it's going, and he's seeing how Specter put everything together. And, and again, Specter's in charge. He's in control. Hmm. Um, and you know, he and John are playing off of each other. They're you know, there's, a, there's a good creative, productive energy between them at this session. Um, you know, there's friction, but I think that's, that was part of also working together. Yeah, but it's, you know, I always say the song comes first, but when the production makes such a big difference, hmm. I mean, it really was a masterful job between the, the Harlem Community Choir in there oh, and the strings yeah. that were added and everything was just perfect about that recording. So. Yeah, that is, that is a great, a great production. Great recording. Yeah. Okay, uh, Kit, over to you. All right, since we're running a little short on time, I'm just going to ask one thing. Um, uh, Jason, when we talked on the phone, you were mentioning that uh, in, in your upcoming book, you're going to bust some myths um, about the recording of, of All Things Must Pass. And I know you don't want to give them all away here. And you mentioned, <laughs> you know, one already, but are, are there just one or two other myths? Uh, we love myth busting on this mm -hmm. show. We've done yes. an episode on that. We're probably going to do more in the future. But are, are there some common misconceptions about uh, the recording sessions and, and, and particularly concerning Phil Spector that, uh, that you've uh, found uh, that you know, you'd like to, like to clear up? The main thing, and I mentioned this, but I want to I want to reemphasize this is that Phil was not out of control during these sessions. You know, he the, Bobby Whitlock has told um, a story before, either in his book or I've heard it in an interview or read it in an interview, where he talks about Phil Spector's sort of you know waving arms around and being a crazy man, and he certainly could be dramatic, and and I think he was dramatic at times during these sessions. But the impression that I got from talking to various people, from, from Chris Thomas to John Leckie to Alan White to Klaus Foreman, is that he, he was the guy in charge. And he and George worked together very closely to make sure everything ran smoothly. And that, that's really, to me, that, that was the first big thing that I kind of stepped back and thought, wait, 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 we've been told the wrong thing about these sessions all these years. Um, and George sort of added that by saying, like, I had to do half work myself because Phil wasn't there, yeah. but his name is on the session sheets as producer. And you know, he's, he's, he's evident uh, from what everybody was telling me, he was there at all those sessions. So um, that's, that's the one big thing. There are other, you know, things about how the sessions were arranged and, and you know, people who played on different songs and things like that, which are 
you know, this whole story of, of there are two drummers and two bassists on the songs isn't true. Um, Alan White says that there were two drummers across the board, but he never played the call battle at the same time. Um, things like that, you know, little, there are little things, but I think, you know, just in general, the Spectre was in control and, and also that, you know, George honestly is as responsible for the sound of that record as Spectre was. He wanted, he wanted this big sort of widescreen, you know, technicolor, stereo surround sound, whatever, however you want to describe it, um, effect, this, this overpowering effect of these songs. Yeah, because, um, I, yeah, I, I, just interesting you mention that because, yeah, I, I found, you know, he said uh, that, you know, years later that George said, you know, he admitted the big production that seemed appropriate at the time later felt a bit over the top with the reverb and the wall of sound. Well, as you said, didn't he want that effect back right. back then? I mean, right. you know, so, yeah, as you said, it sounds like he was just as responsible for that. As right. And Phil. and with Phil not showing up really much in the mix sessions, you know, he would he would show up, but he wouldn't really do much. It was and Scott and to George, and they made those decisions. You know, all right. Yeah. Awesome. And yeah. And I also, I found um, you know an article that mentioned uh, some of Phil Spector's production notes uh, that he gave. You know, when he after he had had um, you know his little fall and, and uh, <laughs> so forth and was convalescing, <laughs> right. I guess, uh, from that and other things. And yeah, he gave very detailed notes um, about what you know what they thought they should do in the mixes bringing up voices and even you know criticizing a little bit saying i you know you need to do a better vocal on that so he sounded pretty engaged um, he, yes he was very engaged mm -hmm. and he had a clear vision you know you can tell from reading the, that letter um the version that's online which is in text is incomplete mm -hmm. we have a we have a complete copy photocopy or, or scan of the five-page letter which we're, we're publishing in the book oh so nice you'll be oh, able to see cool. you'll be able to see all the all the points so there are i think three or four songs that that aren't mentioned online for whatever reason they're omitted um, oh, but he, yeah he's he's very engaged he has a specific idea for what needs to happen to improve the mix of each song and one of the things he does is encourage george to push his vocal up because, yes you know, i noticed that is, George is insecure, um, and that's something that you know sort of comes out of these sessions. This is his insecurity about uh, about putting himself out there like this. So, so Phil is saying, you know, you can sing this. You know, you've you've got a good voice. You've got the voice. Push your vocal up more. Um, and it's you know, it's a very I, to me, it's a very positive letter. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, he is very encouraging and kind of saying, you know, you can, you can, I know you can do a better yeah. vocal on this. I know you can. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah, I, I just think, you know, point well taken that, you know, it tends, people tend to say, oh, he was totally out of it. He was, you know, not, not according to that letter. Uh, you know, definitely sounded engaged. So, uh, well, can't can't wait to uh, read more of your uh, myth busting and, and everything in your upcoming book. Mm. I then more insights right. into this great album so yeah. tom well yeah well we'll have to have jason back on with along with uh our good friend kenneth Womack to talk yes. about the book we'd love to have so, you back so on please uh save some time for that jason appreciate it thank you i'd love to awesome
Great. Well, thank you for, for joining us for this for this show. We're going to uh, wrap it up for now, but I'm sure we'll talk about Phil more in the future at some point. But uh, Jason, please uh, let us know about uh, producing the Beatles. And then, you know, do you have a specific release date for the book? And then are you working on anything else as well? well the book is coming out in July and um, producing the Beatles is coming out when I can get to it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I, I do them myself, so they take a lot of time. And yes. you know, I have other things going on, you know, that I don't, I don't make any money off producing the Beatles. So um, that's, it, it's, a, it's when I have time to do it. So, but I do have uh, several bonus episodes in the works, um, which I hope to, hope to press soon. Um, so just subscribe on iTunes and, and keep an eye out. And if you want to follow it, follow the podcast on Facebook. It's producing the Beatles. Uh, I post updates there. And uh, I will obviously be posting updates when the book comes out when the book is ready. Just I'll be talking about it. Highly recommend it. Yes. Yes. And I also want to say, you know, what a great job you did interviewing Chris Thomas during that uh, 2018 um, uh, White Album Symposium. I mean, that was just a magical yes. weekend. And um, you, you, know, you sure got was. to interview him Saturday, you know, the day before Talk More Talk got to interview him. So, you know, good on you. Great job and uh, really enjoyed it. So, so yeah. Kit, why don't you uh, tell everybody how you can uh, reach and, and contact uh, Talk More Talk if, if you want, and then go ahead and follow that up with uh, what, you, what you've got going. Sure. Uh, well, you can uh, contact us at talkmoresolotalk at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on, of course, our Facebook page, which you're on right now. Um, and uh, <laughs> so you, you found us and uh, you can uh, uh, and you, you can follow us on Twitter at talkmoretalk1. That's the number one. We're also, uh, we have a web page, uh, talkmoretalk.com. And of course, you can find us on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe. We're getting close to a thousand subscribers. Yes. So, so tell all your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your enemies, tell everyone you know, subscribe. <laughs> We're almost there. We're almost there. And uh, like Jason, you can find us on uh, iTunes, um, on uh, Spotify, on iHeartRadio, virtually everywhere. So wherever you get your, uh, get your podcast, you can subscribe to us there. Um, and, uh, and as for me, um, this Thursday, I start my history of Motown class. Wow. And, uh, Wow. Yeah. yeah it it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Can't believe it. If it, this was like months ago that I agreed to do this and now it's almost here. Um, so it starts uh, this Thursday, January 28th. Um, and then it goes uh, February 4th and then February 11th. There's still time if you're listening before January 28th. Uh, there's still time to sign up for it. You can sign up by uh, the link on our Talk More Talk Facebook page. And it's also up on uh, my Facebook page. So uh, sign up. It's going to be really fun. Lots of music. And I've got a lot of information. I've been doing a lot of research. Uh, Jason, I know you can relate. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so I'm doing uh, really been busy, but, uh, but I promise it's going to be a lot of fun and, uh, and you'll learn a lot. So, uh, so hope to see you on That's Thursday. Great. Excellent. Yeah. That's great. And, and speaking nice. of uh, almost a thousand subscribers on YouTube, and Ken Michaels, uh, your, your show Things We Said Today is, is really close to that um, milestone like, as, as well. So um, I think you know, it's a 990. Know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're Come on. Everybody uh, watching. Right. Subscribe. Almost there. Yeah. So let everybody else know what's, what's going on with you. 
Well, I've got my syndicated Beatles radio show called Every Little Thing. And this week, there's a brand new episode. And it's my Beatles by the Numbers show. That's all songs, a full hour, songs with numbers in the song titles. Ah, cool. Three songs in a row with the number three. What will they be? You'll have to listen. Mm. But uh, if you want to know where you can find every little thing on my website, there's a page for the show with links to all the radio stations that carry them, broadcast times, and their websites. You can stream them on their websites. So that's coming up this week right now. Uh, the Beatles trivia that I have on my website is a question about guess who? Phil Spector. And um, up for grabs now, we've got this guy right here, which is a stranger. Oh. A stranger to Tom. Let me just introduce yeah. this album to you. <laughs> I don't know if I have that copy yet. I might have yeah. to get that one from you. <laughs> it's, it's just a typical common one. Sorry to bother you with it. That's, that's, the, that's, the, rare, that's the rare one. <laughs> also, our good friend Jerry Hammock. Has ah, a great. Album. Oh, yes. Good. Yes. good uh, volume 5, right? Volume 5. I've got a few copies to give away of this. This is nice. a series called the Beatles Recording Reference Manual, and this is the last uh, volume. It takes you through the Let It Be sessions yeah. uh, and Abbey Road, the Abbey Road sessions. And Ten for plus those of years you, of work. Yeah, it's amazing all the wow. stuff that he, that he puts into his books. Yep. They tell you the recording dates for all the songs, who plays what, um, if he has the information, what model instrument they're playing, yeah. what kind of amp they're using. Mm -hmm. What kind of processors they're using, Jason? You're into that, <laughs> um, and, uh, so. <laughs> and how everything everything was mixed, you know. Wow. And it's a breakdown if there's a reduction mix, you know, reducing two tracks to one or whatever. It's all there in the book, and there's a chart that shows you how it was done. So it's not only for the casual fan, but for the you know the geek among us. <laughs> and I know there are plenty watching, so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you can write a copy of that book. <laughs> right. I guess to all of us. Secret, secrets out. Uh, my other podcast show, Things We Said Today, our last show was on Phil Spector, and that's out there. You can get, get us on, um, on iTunes, Podbean, and YouTube. Like I said, if you can, subscribe to that. We'll have another new show coming out next week. Uh, my YouTube page um, is something that I just started recently. And I just did an interview with Al Sussman that will be posted uh, shortly. And it all uh, concerns the Beatles afterlife. Oh, what wow. happened in the 50 plus years since the Beatles broke up? All their successes, wow. significant successes. How are they doing today? Are they as popular as they were back in the 60s? What I do like you think? It. You know, so it's all about that. And I uh, just want to mention one more thing. I was interviewed by Pat Matthews, who runs the beatles Arama. Uh, website. It's an all Beatles channel. And he has his own YouTube channel. And he interviewed me uh, this past week. And it's now on the Beatles Arama TV channel. That was also with our good friend Warren Brown, oh, yeah. who you know from uh, the yeah, Tomorrow Never Knows yes, podcast. So the two of them are interviewing me. And every little thing, my show is on Beatles Arama. It's been on there for many years. So Pat has interviewed me as had Warren. And it's up there on hmm. their. Uh, on their YouTube page. And uh, that about covers everything.
for me. Great. Oh, and shout out to Fab Four, uh, Fab Four Radio, Fab Four that, Radio. Ca- that right. carries our show. Yep. All of and our shows. For- All yeah. of our shows. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And don't forget to check out Ken's interview with Kittle Tool on his Ken, Ra- Ken yes. Michaels Radio yep. uh, YouTube channel as well. Had a great so time. Very, very good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I'm Excellent. thinking of changing so- the name of my my videos to What's Wrong with Radio. Yeah, I think we'll just call it that. Yeah, we've all talked about that. Yeah, right. That's funny. So on the two legs front, we've been very busy as well. We're actually putting out two shows a week. Um, I don't know how we're doing it, but we're uh, we're really hammering out these yeah. shows. Um, we just put out a show this past Saturday with our good friend Joe Mayo, who unfortunately wasn't able to make it. I forgot to say that earlier today, but he should be back for He'll for the next back. episode. And we talk mm-hmm. about uh, collecting McCartney three, the you know the big craze, the anticipation. Of, of waiting for all of our copies, the going out to the stores and looking for the copies. And, uh, you know, and I made sure to specify that it's really the music that's the most important thing about this. But, you know, as collectors, you know, all those versions were, <laughs> were pretty, it was pretty fun to, uh, I got to admit, pretty fun to collect all of these different versions. Uh, the wallet wasn't too happy, but um, after I was getting everything, I got to tell you, the, the the colors on all these different variants were, were beautiful. I was really impressed with uh, with the different colors on the vinyl. Uh, this week we got, <clears throat> excuse me, ranking the tracks continues. Uh, we finished the 70s last week. This week we're on the 80s and we're going to be ranking the tracks from McCartney 2. We will have a special guest for this one. Um, and you'll, you guys will see who that is on Wednesday nights. Uh, tomorrow night I'm really excited because we're going to be interviewing Gabe Dixon, who, as we know, is the keyboardist from the Driving Rain album. So really looking forward to hearing his take on those sessions. And uh, yeah, you can reach us at uh, Two Legs or you can email us at Two Legs podcast at gmail.com and we're everywhere please subscribe to our youtube channel as well and um, jason i just want to say thank you once again this was a really incredible show listening to you this is another geek out moment just you know (laughs) learning which is which is what we're here for is to you know learn you know stuff that you know we may not have known and i definitely learned a lot about uh phil specter um so Thank you very much for, for the, from the bottom of my heart for coming on and uh, talking to us about that. So if there's nothing else to add, everybody else is good. I think okay. So. All right. So for, so for Jason Krupa, Ken Michaels, Kid O'Toole, I'm Tom Hanyadi saying, I'm just a bad boy. Take care, everybody. You know the rest. Bye-bye. <laughs> Talk, more talk, chat, more chat. <laughs>